0: When it comes to their buying behavior or purchasing behavior, that lens does not apply. Cost of logistics is actually fairly down uh, in the deciding factor. Cost of not getting it right is also very expensive.
1: Absolutely. There's a ROAS metric which can be optimized in which you have, let's say, a certain time to optimize. And then there's a customer acquisition cost for the lifetime value lens to optimize. We've
0: started going very aggressive in terms of, uh, you know, segmentation. And segmentation is by product, by price point as well.
1: welcome to the State of Retention Marketing podcast. This is your host, Ankur. I lead everything growth in marketing for WebEngage. And here's a conversation with a bunch of leaders from the product, marketing and founder ecosystem to talk about the what, why and how of retention marketing. We feel there's a lot of room for education in the subject of retention marketing because it's just so new. So we're actually partnering with Economic Times Brand Equity to actually bring retention into a mainstream conversation. I hope you find these conversations insightful. Thank you for the listen. <music> Today is an interesting day because this is the first time I have a D2C founder with us. And while the state of retention marketing in the D2C ecosystem is still in early days, at least there's a lot of maturity in how Jatan is thinking about the space because this is not the first time he's a part of a D2C company. This is his first startup of his own. But prior to this, he spent time with Akiva, he spent time with Bahadam. And he's seen the journeys of how D2C brands have to be built. Thank you for doing this, Jatan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so
0: much, Ankur, for having me.
1: Awesome. So then maybe a good idea to start with a bit of your story on how Perfor has come to be, what uh, you were doing at uh, the previous places like Akiva and Vada. How about you tell us? Sure.
0: Uh, So my journey into the consumer brand ecosystem started in 2016 when I joined Akiva as a founding team member. At Akiwa, I had the unique opportunity of, you know, spending time across different verticals. So I spent some time at operations, I spent some time in, you know, new product development, I did a fair bit of offline retail, fair bit of e-commerce, you know, sales for them, etc, etc. So I had a very holistic experience, I really got to see the zero to one journey up and close, you know, what to do, how to do, when to do, and what works and what does not work as well, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, looking back in the hindsight, Akiva was not really a successful stint from an outcome perspective, right? From a learning perspective, it was beautiful, I think. One of the best experiences that I've ever had. And post Akiva, I was at a stage where in 2019 I wanted to do a start of my startup of my own, but unfortunately I didn't have the right idea. And an idea that was that I was excited about or I felt, you know, very strong conviction about. So I felt, okay, hey, I don't want to do it for the sake of it, because if I do only for the sake of it, it might not turn out the way I want it to turn out. So I got an opportunity to work at Wadham. I was part of the leadership team, you know, looking at product strategy as their vertical. And for me, Wadham was a very different experience from an Akiva because Akiva was 0 to 1, whereas Wadham was more like 5 to 10. Uh, And the business was very different, right? Because Wadham is a global brand operating from India. So the challenges were very different. The problems were very different. The solutions to those problems were very different. You know, how do you get started in Japan? What kind of compliances are required? How do you sort of develop products or, you know, People who drink tea in Japan, right? Or people who sort of uh, drink tea in US. And now, even in US, you know, the, the consumers are very fast evolving, right? I got an opportunity to understand the US consumers or global consumers to some extent and figured out, you know, what does it take to really, uh, you know, operate at a very large scale, right? So to give you context, at Akiva, when I was there, we were doing about 6-7 crores ARR. Uh, I joined Wadham at about 60 crores. And, uh, during my time for about 20 odd months, we were able to take the brand to about 170, 180 crores, right? So I think that was, uh, like, and during the last five odd years during my achievement and Wadham stint, one thing was very clear. I love consumer brands. I love the journey of building a consumer brand. I love being a part of it. I love solving for consumers. So it was but natural for me to start thinking, you know, what can I do? How can I add value to the ecosystem? How, how can I come up with something that you know, probably millions of consumers will love it. And uh, so that was a thought process. I wanted to do a consumer brand. I was understanding and trying to think of white spaces. I was trying to think of what is that problem that is still needs to be solved. In so many conversations with my co-founder Tishar, uh, where we had a long spreadsheet of different categories and different problem statements, you know, is acne as a problem solved, right? Skincare is solved because skincare is a lot of cluttered. But is there a brand that is the go-to acne removal brand, mm. for example, or, you know, is there a brand that can help you with your both protein and beauty as a supplement, right? At an intersection of both, you know, or is there a brand that is doing some very interesting work in sexual wellness, which is a niche and a category with has some amount of taboo, but, but, but it's an interesting category, right? So, so we spoke about a lot of categories and in one conversation, we started thinking about and talking about oral care and we realized that where we both Tushar and I are very like the context is both Tushar and I are very active new age consumers right so we would pick up the newest brand of on the shelf or you know we would sort of go out and shop on Amazon or a DTC website and see okay what are they doing different let's see let's understand more about the product let's see what the founder story is let's see what they're writing on the packaging and then you would have you know internal conversation ye ga, ye ga, you know you know न, या, mm. So all of that happened and uh, during our oral care conversation, we realized we as consumers had upgraded pretty much everything that we consume today on an everyday level to a relatively newer age brand, mm. right? So like we're both uh, big coffee consumers, but we don't drink Nescafe, right? We probably drink a Sleepy Owl or a Blue to Pie or a Third Wave, sure. etc. Uh, and if we... If you use a face wash, we don't use a Nivea. We probably use a man company or a Bombay shaving company or any new age brand, whether that's a minimalist, etc. Right? Sure. And that was true across, right? Whether that's personal care or food, to some extent, even apparel or sneakers. And we realized, you know, why is oral care not being upgraded? Right? Why are the same set of products being used that have been and that we've been using for the last two decades or so? Mm. Why are there no new brands bringing out a new narrative? for the younger audience, which is, you know, people in the age bracket of 18 to 40, right? And uh, that was a broad thought, the macro level thought. And then we started going deeper into the category to understand, are the products good enough? And then we realized the products are shit, right? The design is shit, the narrative is shit. It's the same old 9 out of 10 dentists recommend this product, right? And uh, and, and I think like we spoke to about 400 odd consumers, uh, people who felt who we felt were part of our target audience. So, understand if this is a problem that exists in our mind, or it's a slightly larger problem. Um, The insights from those consumer conversations were very interesting, where people said in their head, they treat oral care equivalent to a skincare or a hair care. But when it comes to their buying behavior or purchasing behavior, that lens does not apply because the same consumer would spend anywhere between 20 to 25 minutes deciding upon the kind of serum that they want to buy for their skin or for their hair, but they would not even buy their toothbrush or toothbrush themselves, right? Which was a very different, uh, you know, uh, buying behavior. So we felt, you know, this is broken and we need to fix this. We need to come up with products that are better, more functional, more cleaner, well-designed, so that Indian consumers can really start, uh, you know, investing in good oral care.
1: Very interesting. So well thought through in terms of the whole theoretical framework on why this category makes sense and enough, personal insights on consumer brand upgrades uh, of new consumers like yourself and then also the lens of the 400 customers you spoke to. So in terms of now when this is decided that okay this is going to be my play uh, when did the brand choice happen? How did the team come together? How was the first let's say drawing board uh, made with respect to the product design itself or the choice of product category? I
0: think uh, so uh, it still gives me goosebumps right? <laughs> when you have that blank canvas in front of you and you have to decide uh, what the first product should be what will be the specifications of the first product how will your brand architecture look like what will be the brand name i think both of us we've you know sweated enough on figuring out and deciding on our brand name it took us like literally more than 6 months on finalizing the brand name and then making sure that it does justice to our brand philosophy and we don't have other issues and challenges like you know trademark and domain name and instagram handle right like so on and so on right so uh we started thinking that okay uh, we want to build a functional brand that will appeal to a certain audience and since we wanted to go the digitally native route we knew that the unit economics have to make sense right similarly at VADAM at a 600-700 rupee EOV you still have about 100 rupee uh, you know logistics costs and other uh, costs added up like commissions, warehousing, packaging etc cetera, etc cetera. so one thing was very clear that we had to, if you're going to start a uh, website play, if you're going to have a D2C first play, we'll have to solve for unit economics. And then we figured out that Indians uh, don't use a lot of electric toothbrushes, right? The, the category has existed for far too long. There is a very dominant player in the category. But the penetration hasn't happened. The adoption hasn't happened, right? And why is that? And again, we did another round of consumer interactions to understand what is the problem? Because, if I was speaking to someone like you and I don't know whether you use a manual toothbrush or electric toothbrush, but, like I'll take the broad assumption that you use a manual toothbrush. I would ask, you know, hey, Ankur, you're well-to-do. You use an iPhone, you use a MacBook, but why manual toothbrush? And you would come up with answers like, yeah, jatan ba- you know, it's too, he- too heavy. I don't know how the technology works. I don't want to get into the hazards of, you know, if it goes, if it, mal- it's, if it malfunctions, who is going to be responsible? There's no service center out there. Where will I get it replaced or uh, get the product picked up, etc. So the value chain, the ecosystem is broken. And uh, uh, I'm not comfortable spending 1,500 uh, rupees on a tool because I don't understand the concept. Right? I don't understand what is the difference between a manual and electric. Right. So these were the s- some of insights that we got. And we thought, okay, let's make it uh, closer to what I, consumer requires or is expecting right so we really worked on the design we worked with an industrial designer to help us carve out initial designs of you know what a sleek and beautiful looking electric toothbrush should look like and would look like then we worked on the technology of it because most electric toothbrushes uh, that are very heavy and bulky in design are also rechargeable right and that is a challenge because people don't people were constantly traveling they don't want to carry their toothbrush charge alongside it they wake up one day and they say this is not charged what do i do now right so we figured out okay there could be a different mechanism of uh you know powering the toothbrush which is a triple a battery so we worked on that technology and uh, then we started doing prototyping with our manufacturer there were quite a bit quite a few iterations in terms of how the technology functions and what all changes are required to be done to make a workable prototype we got about you know 15-20 samples we distributed it in our friends and family people used it some of them liked it some of them didn't like it people who didn't like it we also understood what were their reasons and we realized okay uh you know it's a perception right that you've been using a manual toothbrush and you can't change overnight right so and my classic case for that would be uh, driving a manual versus an automatic right uh it takes a while to get to that transition, right? Yeah. So, so I think we realized that maybe the other 10 customers who didn't like the product, they love the design, they love the technology, they love the experience, but they're just not comfortable using it and they'll get there. Mm. As in man, more awareness and adoption happens in people around closer to them in their vicinity start using the product. So, that's how we started out. We worked with a design studio who did our initial set of, you know, brand architecture and packaging. They also... Like, as part of our design agency, we also gave them the mandate that, okay, hey, you will also have to speak with 50 customers and, uh, and we'll set up those interviews and calls from our network and understand what a consumer is expecting and come up with a brand design and language that will do justice to the audience that we are
1: going after. So, so that's been the. You know, so the, uh, other side of the whole equation, when you chose the category that you chose, you said with very ease that the cost of logistics doesn't work out for 500 rupees. Unfortunately, there's still hundreds of brands which are trying to do something similar. And uh, this seems to be the learning curve that you kind of leapfrog from because of your experience with D2C brands. So in that lens, uh, the whole macro-level view on how D2C as an apostrophe now exists. You mentioned that there's so many categories in which you've switched over to D2C brands. You are the discerning new-age consumer who was on the upper side of the equation with respect to the SECs, as they call it. And you're the target audience of just about every brand. Now, what is, in your impression, the playbook to build a meaningful business here, simply because you've seen two and now almost the third one meaningfully being built as well. Uh, theoretically, what are the mistakes that people seem to have made which are entirely avoidable?
0: I think one thing that, you know, founders and people who are building the brand really want need to understand, I would say, is, do, does the proposition that they have in terms of product making sense for a D2C or a digital first channel or not, right? And if yes, then it's important to sort of start penetrating and building it out over a period of time. And the second realization that we've had is that irrespective, even if it's the most perfect channel, and if you're doing it for the first time for your brand, it will take
1: you a while to get it right, you know. So, Just assuming like, the making sense part of it, what makes sense and what doesn't. The cost of logistics yeah. is one part. Is there another lens you're applying that? Yeah. So, cost
0: of logistics is actually fairly down. Sure. Uh, in the deciding factor. Mm. It is also about, you know, where are the customers buying, right? So, let me give you an example from our journey. If you go out today, you will not, and if you literally go out in 10 retail stores or electronic stores, you will not find an avenue to buy an electric toothbrush. Sure. Right? Because it's not available offline. The only place that you can buy offline online is an Amazon or a Flipkart. Uh, even on Nike, the category did not exist before we started. We started the category on Nike. The category didn't exist on what we today know what we today call as you know quick commerce channels like Blinkit and Zepto, right? We've started the category on those channels, so we knew that the only way a customer can buy electric toothbrush is on Amazon or Flipkart. But the experience there is broken because it's a purchase that requires some understanding for the consumer to get there, and they need a pre-sale support, right? They need to interact with a customer support or a customer experience representative, whether or a WhatsApp or an email or a Phone call and become comfortable. Okay, hey, if this goes bad, there is a one-year warranty. Can I use it? What happens if I use it in my shower? It's waterproof. You know, how does the product work? How will it help me clean my teeth better? What are the classic differences between a manual and that kind of information is not available on platforms like Amazon and Sipcard. And that is the gap that we realized if we have a D2C play, is just going to be a lot more holistic. So that was one. Similarly, you know, if I were to give another example, uh, one brand that I love is Mokubara, right? Now, for them, it also makes sense to sell digitally because the cost of acquiring a customers and the cost of opening a retail store is very high. And sure. they can only do it at a at a certain scale. Mm. But when they were starting out, when they were in their zero to one journey, they had to make sure that they're acquiring customers online. The number of purchasers might be low. You know, they might get 10 10 uh, customers a day but if every customer is giving you 10,000 worth of sales right that's lakh rupees in a day which is not negligible so that's that sort of makes sense but for other brands which are probably food and beverage and let's say tea in India it's a grocery item right people buy it people buy it in bulk people buy it from their neighborhood Kirana store so if you want to start a company today in India, considering the Indian consumers and how they shop and what their buying behavior looks like, it's very difficult to sort of sell a 200 rupee or a 300 rupee tea, uh, which is a 500 gram pack because logistics, buying behavior, the cost of acquiring a customer, all things don't add up. And today, we also face that challenge where internally, we are trying to think, how can we grow toothpaste? But we know that we can't scale toothpaste on our website because Cost is a challenge, buying behavior is a challenge, toothpaste is a grocery item, right? So we're building alternative revenue uh, channels to build that category.
1: You use the word unit economics and you kind of broke it down from acquisition side of it, inventory side of it, pricing side of it, the appetite for the consumer to pay a premium because he's used to that category offline. But lens of unit economics was pretty much a day zero topic for you. Yeah. Which for a lot of brands is not necessarily as well understood. Yeah. Right. And now taking a different lens to it in terms of uh, what we were speaking about earlier offline, the whole category creation versus riding on a category's evolution, right? Because there's, you know, thousands of toothpaste consumers in India, millions, of course. But from that lens of Sensodyne came in and did something very interesting, which changed that space to a certain level. But that still did a very mainstream play. And like you said, oral care hasn't seen that kind of a shift again in some sense. So there's probably an opportunity available to brand. But on one side, the whole behavioral change can also be a very expensive exercise. While riding on an existing ongoing behavioral change, you know, the shift from unbranded to branded, the shift from normal to slightly premium. Those shifts are larger consumer behavior patterns. So from your lens and what you've tried to do here, how did you allocate the category creation wala kharcha and the whole investment that it'll take to change India's behavior? Vis-a-vis trying to ride on an existing slight behavior change and finding an issue within that?
0: I think what, see, one, it's a function of capital. How, yes. how much capital do you have in the bank? And if you're going to go down the route of raising venture capital money... But did you have,
1: know this upfront that you will have capital to build category? Yeah. So you we,
0: so we raised money pre-revenue, right? Yeah. And there's a reason why we raised money pre-revenue because we knew that starting off that let's say we all know today how, how expensive digital advertising has become. Sure. And even we knew that when we start advertising, you know, via Meta or via Google, et cetera, it's not that we're going to get a 2x or a 3x return on any, every penny that we put out, right? We might start at 1x because we're a new brand the awareness will take time we'll have to do a few things on the brand to create brand awareness and create that brand pull and get some conversations going in some private circles and then we might start seeing some you know positive return on the investment in terms of advertising so one it is a function of capital second i think uh what we have very carefully done uh in our journey uh is that we've acquired a lot of customers where and and lot does not mean million, but, you know, probably thousands of customers or lakhs of customers where we knew that this is an audience that have that has already bought into our proposition of an electric toothbrush or a water flosser where unit economics makes sense. Now we can sell more products to the same customer because the cost of acquisition is gone, sure. right? Which is a big, big cost when you're running a digitally natively. And then I can cross sell and upsell other products to them in their second purchase or via our own media channels like, you know emailer, SMSs, WhatsApp, uh, or just, you know, creating uh, more recall for the brand, right? So today we do a very interesting thing and a lot of people reach out and that's a success where every time you order from Perfora website, you'll receive a very detailed letter from the brand, which is written by me and Tushar, where we talk about what we're trying to change. And then there's a QR code at the end of it, which you can scan and get a 30% off your next purchase. And a lot of people avail that, right? Sure. So they've bought the toothpaste so sorry they've bought the toothbrush Mm -hmm. right and that letter the narrative in that letter is around toothpaste because we know we'll be acquiring the customer via toothbrush and there's an anecdotal data historical data that we have analyzed okay hey if you're acquiring thousand customers 800 customers are buying the toothbrush so that's 80 20 for us and that's a common letter that goes to everybody so even if that person has not bought the toothpaste which is highly likely uh, based on data they are sort of compelled to look at, okay, hey, this is what's broken in my toothpaste and I've already made uh, an investment in very high quality toothbrush. Let me go out and buy a toothbrush and there's a discount code at the end of it and that works.
1: Fair enough. Which brings us to the favorite topic of my conversation, which is retention. So you're really thinking repeats and uh, cross-sells and upsells pretty much from day zero or when did this become a part of your active conversations?
0: I think we have thought about it uh, uh, pretty much from day zero but we've not implemented it on day zero. And there's a reason for it. Uh, The reason is very simple in our head. Let's say if we have, you know, 10,000 customers, which is a fairly small pool of people, and you know how early stage brands are limited resources, limited number of people, limited number of hours. So should we be focusing on taking that 10,000 pool of customers to 20,000 over the next three months? Or should we be focusing on, you know, making that out of those 10,000, getting those, when Two thousand people repeat. repeat in our in our head till we achieved a certain scale retention would not make sense mm-hmm. from an, in an absolute number. It sure wouldn't, yeah, it did not. It won't move the needle in absolute sense, right? Percentage wise, you know, if I were to show that number to investors, you know, ten thousand customers, two thousand people, three thousand people are repeating. Great, hmm. but for me, the meaningful number is one lakh customers. Even ten percent or twelve percent are repeating. That's four x of sure. the smaller base. Right. Yeah. So we've started doing retention activities pretty much in the last six months, mm. which is about an year and a half into our journey when we realized ki now we have enough number of customers who know about the brand, who have bought the brand, who are excited about the brand. And how can we start, uh, you know, how can we sort of uh, start doing things so that they start transacting more, right? So in the month two, month three, month four, month six. And
1: what are we able to put a. Let's say revenue scale and uh, number of customers scale to the whole retention effort that we started six months ago. You said enough, but quantitatively, is this like, whatever, 100,000, 500,000?
0: I think for us, that number was about 100,000. Sure. Uh, in terms of customers, right? Till the time we didn't have 100,000 customers, we felt it's it won't make a lot there of sense. There are other
1: priorities to chase in some yeah. sense. So obviously, there's a founder level, the mindshare is the biggest asset, so to speak. And from a revenue scale perspective, this would have been in the ballpark of?
0: About a crore. A month. Yeah. So Um-huh. that's the scale
1: at which it just starts to make sense to focus on other things, you know. But going back to the previous point when we were talking about category creation, you chose to uh, operate your economics from day zero. Yes. You also made sure that from a repeat lens, you will worry about it after you hit 100k. You also were prepared to spend 1x on ROAS. And right. right? that's where all of your marketing investments yeah. go. So the 1x ROAS play to the 2x to the 3x, how did that journey look from a, while you continue to grow, you tried to optimize as well?
0: I think what has happened with us uh, one, we've always had our ears very closer to the ground and closer to customers sure. to understand what can we do better? How can we do better? How can we get them to, you know, buy more and improve our, uh, you know, return on advertising spend? Right. So, so that is one. Second, what we've realized is that as your brand gets stronger, uh, as a function of it, your Ravas will start improving. Right? Which has also happened with us. So, for example, uh, when we started out, we were only available on our website. But then we launched on Amazon. Then six months down the line or eight months down the line, we launched on Nika. Then probably almost 15 months down the line, we launched on a Blinkit and a Zepto. Right? So, you have So,
1: distribution, so to speak? Yeah. And then a certain amount of discovery within those platforms.
0: Yeah. So, distribution and... How strong your brand is getting, uh, like, how your brand is getting stronger on digital platforms, right? So, sure. for example, today, uh, and I'm not boasting it, but subtle flex, <laughs> is that we are probably the second largest, most followed oral care brand in the country, right?
1: Most and followed, you mean on social media? Okay. Right? On Instagram, right? On That's a because, conscious investment you made towards that? Yeah,
0: so that's a conscious investment that we have made that we will scale that up, we will build that community, we will invest in content, we will try to change that perception, right? We're the only brand today that does limited edition drops where people wait for a few months to sort of buy that new special, you know, patent toothbrush or a special flavor of toothpaste or a special flavor of chewing gum, etc. And on top of it, like on the brand side, we've not only done, uh, we've done a few things on social media and instagram but we've also invested heavily in emails right we have mm. so we are one of the brands that's known for writing very detailed and uh you know hum- so. human oriented emails right so via emails we don't try and sell our products what we try and sell is our brand right sure. we try and tell people okay what is going behind the scenes you know mm. for example if you're a consumer of our brand you would want to know out of curiosity that who is Jatan's inspiration, right? Or who's the Shah's inspiration? Who does he look up to? Or, you know, how does he spend his Sunday? You know, if someone's joined our team and relocated from, let's say, uh, Northeast, you know, why did he make that move? Mm-hmm. And how's the experience for him settling into a new city? Uh, you know, recently I wrote a newsletter which got a fair bit of, uh, uh, you know, appreciation okay. where we've. We for the first time a couple of months ago, we had launched dual-color electric toothbrushes, right? So the brush head is of a different color and the handle is of a different color. And the honest story behind that inspiration was that I may see my father wears a turban and I've seen him growing up while I was like uh, at my parents' place uh, earlier on that he would sort of very uh, specifically match the color of his turban and his shirt, right? and make, And do the contrast, etc. So that was an inspiration that can we do something in terms of colors right? and people loved that story that so honest so raw on how did you go about figuring out new colors for your electric purpose mm-hmm. and that emailer had uh images and pictures of my father wearing turban with a shirt and coincidentally it was similar colors to what the toothbrush colors sure. are right so people just love that authentic honest way of storytelling mm-hmm. and and that's how ROAS gets improved right because mm-hmm. you read that newsletter it's a seven eight minute newsletter and then you realize okay hey This is beautiful. Let me share it across in my network. You forward it to 10 odd people. They'll take a look at the brand. And I don't have to spend on paid advertising to acquire two or other customers out of the Mm. 10
1: that you forwarded already. From a capital allocation point of view, given that you had access to some amount of capital, but it's still finite. Yeah. uh, And you chose to invest in the brand from a 20-year horizon, which is what I'm trying to understand as a brand founder today who might have similar, perhaps slightly lesser levels of capital, because that's the truth of majority of D2C brands. The allocation towards a long-term brand play versus a more tactical, uh, play, which makes sure that the roas gets healthier faster than you know I, uh, later. I, How do I, you? See I that think lens?
0: I think there are two three things. One is that you have to figure out white spaces on where you won't be burning a lot of money, and that might be a relatively volume play. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'll tell you, and from our journey, we launched a teeth whitening powder, which even today is a bestseller on Amazon. It's okay. a 250 rupee product. We don't spend anything. I mean, we get a, I think, 4X, 5X or on that product on mm-hmm. Amazon. And we sell literally 10,000 units a month, if not more. So,
1: it's your cash flow, right? so to speak.
0: Yeah. And, and it's so, also
1: a recruiter product because most people get to know your brand because of
0: it. Yeah. And it's a very small, like, uh, so yeah, and you know, I mean, the barrier to trial is not high, right? Yeah. You don't have to spend a thousand okay. bucks, right? Sure. 250 rupees. Similar is the case with a tongue cleaner. Hmm. Uh, we're also best sellers in tongue cleaner. We sell a lot of tongue cleaner today. And we're able to generate a positive device on that. For us, the brand play also does not correlate with the fact that I have to spend a lot. So okay. a lot of people have that notion or perception care branding. may spend karna branding, to will get right? But that's not true, right? You have to figure out growth hacks on what you can do interesting on branding. So for example, I'll tell you, we've done a We've done a pop-up here at Coworks. We've done pop-up at VWork. We're the only brand today, very confidently, I can say that, that participates in flea markets, right? Okay. So you go to a flea market, we're looking to, you know, snack on healthy products or, you know, indulge or, you know, buy some fine jewelry or an apparel or skincare to some extent. But then you spot oral care and good-looking toothbrushes. You get intrigued, right? And then you want to say, okay, hey, what is this? Hmm. Uh, what are you trying to do? And out of the 100 people that we interact, 10, 15 people buy, other people take note of us and probably check us out online or follow us on Instagram then and there. And then at some point in time, not today, not two months on the line, probably six months on the line, they even make that purchase when they see us closer Multiple to their times. store or, you know, somebody talking about our brand yeah. uh, in a conversation, right? So that co- conversion will happen. Mm. So offline events, we have done a lot. Like I think over the last two years, we would have done about 30 40 pop-ups and free markets uh, overall we very we've been consistent at writing content which is newsletters which is you know putting out content on instagram which helps us to create a perception uh, we uh, you know i've also sort of tried you know selling our brand and our philosophy and what all in things we're doing on linkedin to some extent it's a free platform sure. people read people in, engage people interact Every launch that we do, I try and sort of write a post, you know, what was the thought process behind the launch? Why is it something that you should check out? And, like, realistically speaking, right, even if you get 10,000 impressions, right, that's 10,000 eyeballs. Yeah, That's free cost. Uh, So, so I think all these organic activities have helped us over a long period of time to improve our ROAS and improve our unit economics. Again, figuring out the white spaces, leveraging organic mediums, doing things which are not very traditional, which is doing offline events for us.
1: You mentioned these are the experiments in some sense, right? Yeah. So How do you measure uh, the outcome? Because uh, it's very hard to put a pinpointed ROI on some of these activities. I so don't... Is this more because you have a belief that this will be relevant for us? Or is there like a methodical approach to figuring out what's working and what to scale and what not to scale?
0: Till the time our cost is getting covered, we are comfortable with it
1: that is one fair enough so with every pop-up you make are you able to sell enough to cover the cost of yeah then that makes it a fairly easy thing to decide to scale right
0: yeah and I'm talking about let's say if you do 10 pop-ups not every pop-up you'll recover your cost but some pop-ups you'll recover more than you've invested and some pop-ups will not work right Mm. and you realized okay why this does not work maybe the audience wasn't right maybe the time of the year isn't right maybe Mm. something else is broken Mm. and it's okay you take those learnings and you come back and do it again in a better way but uh, now we have a framework where we know that okay, this works uh, we are able to cover our cost uh, it really helps us put the brand out there people take notice people inter- you know people get intrigued and they mm-hmm. will make purchase uh, later on in their journey you know uh, one anecdotal instance that's coming to my mind we were doing one of our earlier pop ups at this condominium here in gurgaon called magnolias mm-hmm. where we had set up and in that in that setup being an Oral K brand felt awkward and weird because there were like a lot of apparel, jewelry, you know, uh, home decor brands popping up, up in that flea market. And Oral K felt different, but it's okay. We got the ROI that we wanted and better
1: than what we had invested. So, from that lens, of course, uh, there is the short term, mid term, long term kind of outcomes. And it will somewhere be driven by the founder's belief as well as. Uh, the learning ability to adapt, okay, if we've learned this from this pop-up, we adapted after that. Adapt, but we'll continue the format, not to kill it prematurely. Because some of the experiments need that iterative uh, bit to get right before they can be considered in a perfect shape. Fair enough. So now, coming back to the whole set of retention and user engagement and cross-sells and uh, acquisition side of things becoming a certain level of scale. So you have 100-key-odd uh, customers coming into you every month and you have a certain amount of revenue coming into you every month. And now this whole journey of cross-sells, upsells becomes a meaningful piece in your puzzle. And there was a certain lens of personal brand play in your letters and your stories that you were telling. And at some point, it starts to become, okay, there's only so far that this will go. Or maybe you'll have to start blending this with uh, the more data-driven approaches. And you mentioned about the tongue-cleaning product and you mentioned about teeth whitening. What does the portfolio look like and what does each product do for you? So there are usually these, you know, the, the 10-rupee bottle of Coke was considered a recruiter yeah. for somebody to bring or try Coke for the first time. Is that the lens that you apply to what you sell or teeth whiteners on Amazon that this will recruit people into the brand and now we'll have to find a way to get them to repeat? I what is the lens? What say?
0: we've been able to do which might be a very different approach from how other brands approach uh, you know their revenue or brand building play we have figured out certain products make a lot of sense on certain channels and certain products don't make a lot of sense on certain channels. Okay. Right?
1: I'll so, need you to break yeah, this
0: on. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about it. So for example, for us to advertise on electric footbrush on Amazon, we bleed money.
1: So we don't do it. Because it's
0: competitive. It's very competitive, right? Okay. If you open Amazon, you'll see an Oral-B or a Colgate or a Philips advertising heavily. And we have the, you know, data insights of how their PL looks like, right? And, sure. and for them, it's they don't. Like, internally, they don't even consider that advertising as performance marketing, right? Mm-hmm. They consider it as a share of voice. That if I'm present in a category, I want share of voice. And I'm going to spend X amount to just be, to invest in visibility. Doesn't matter whether I get conversions or not, right? Mm-hmm. But by the virtue of being a small brand with limited capital and limited resources, we can't do that, right? Because I have to and at the end. You could of argue, the day, right?
1: This will eventually give me impact elsewhere outcomes subsequently. That's the whole brand building share of voice play. Yeah. But, yeah, okay, but your still, opinion is different.
0: Yeah, no, I think at the end of the day, as a founder, I have to look at my PNL and I have to justify. Each and every penny being spent, I have to look at when will this turn positive, right? And if mm-hmm. I'm not seeing that this being this turning positive for the next two years, can I continue to do that, or should I be doing something in parallels? Yes. Mm-hmm. So the you know just trying to break that down, there are certain products where we enjoy dominant position leadership positions because we get fantastic rewards. We get uh, we've been able to uh, you know really get product market fit for that particular product on that channel. Whereas certain products don't make sense, right? So mm. on our website, you will never see a banner of a teeth whiting powder or a tongue cleaner because I, when a customer or a consumer, you know, hops onto our website, I don't want to sell them at 200 yeah, rupee product, yeah, yeah. right? For us, the acquire on a website is electric tools because it's very beautifully priced, right? Water flosser is a stretch. The market is also still evolving. Awareness is being like people are getting aware about that category and about that product and the entire concept of flossing people do buy water flosses i'm not saying that but you know the perfect inflection point for us is you know selling electric toothbrush on top of that once we know if someone's bought electric toothbrush the solid clear insight is that this person wants to invest in oral care right and now the entire retention funnel comes into play where we want to sell you know, a tongue cleaner or a mouthwash or a toothpaste or even a chewing gum for that matter. And to give them a taste of our products, sometimes we do free samples, right? So we'll have a communication. Let's say our toothbrush is priced at around eleven hundred rupees or twelve hundred rupees. We'll tell them, make your cart fifteen hundred and you get a free chewing gum or a free toothpaste, right? And it's very uh, compelling. Okay, toothpaste to chewing gum I eat. Right, let me just add, like, let me just buy two more products, so they'll make up for fifteen, and I'll get two freebies, right? So, a consumer gets to try more products, and these products, uh, by design, have higher repeatability, right? Because if you've bought a electric toothbrush, it's highly unlikely that you'll repeat in the next two months, right? Because it's a purchase that you've made. You'll only repeat if you want to gift it to someone or you are someone who, who wants to have a separate toothbrush for your travel and separate toothbrush for your home and if you have five homes five different toothbrushes for five different homes uh, those users are very less in india but highly likely that you will go come back and repeat on a toothpaste or a chewing gum or a mouthwash or a teeth whitening powder
1: uh, you know tell me something you mentioned the same user buying for himself but you know as a family and somebody who is principally aligned towards investing more in oral care won't i be doing this for other family members and is that a pattern you see
0: yeah we do see that but It's not that if there are 100 people who have bought electric toothbrushes, uh, uh, you know, all those 100 will come back. Probably 20-25 people come back and buy for their family members because at the end of the day, you have to understand brushing is also a personal choice, right? You know, I might be using a electric toothbrush, but my mom would still be using a manual toothbrush. And despite me giving it to her, gifting it to her, she might say, Jat and I... You know, I'm old school. Oh,
1: I'm on the other lens, yeah. So, you know, uh, my kids use an electric toothbrush, but I necessarily might not because the hassle of changing their head and sometimes the battery and whatever. And it typically ends up having a life of three months. So for a 1000 rupee toothbrush. If it doesn't last that long, it's not fun. But if you look at a Barbie toothbrush or whatever, the kids tend to enjoy that experience. Whether it's functionally beneficial or not, it's still not a certain clarity. But if I'm traveling and I'll see a fancy-looking toothbrush, I'll pick it up from them and they'll use it for three months and it'll be destroyed and gone. Because changing the head, or changing the battery is all a mess. So I'm trying to understand from that lens that if you are able to uh, bifurcate your users and audience from that lens to say that this is likely a family consumer, which means if you want to make a family bundle uh, to say that this is for your dad, for mom, this one kid, kid two, whatever, and this has whatever, then it will become a much larger transaction value. And also a very clear repeat path because there's a shine, whatever toothbrush or toothpaste rather, which is, you know, whatever fancy flavors and whatever yeah. brand. And that has a repeat rate because you will need toothpaste every month. Right? True.
0: Not true that. And. The only missing puzzle for us is that we don't have a kids range as of now. Okay. Right? So something that's on your radar? like huh? Yeah. So that's something on your radar? It's our some, point. Something, something on our radar, the team is working on it. See, for us, we take product development, launching a new product very, very seriously, right? We invest this amount of time and for us, it's not about key. let's launch a new product sure. and will sort of uh, we'll see a spike in revenue. We launch a new
1: product when we are confident, right? You did that once and you learned the lesson, the value yeah. toothpaste.
0: Yeah. So I think we take product very seriously and we want to get it right mm-hmm. uh, because the cost of not getting it right is also very expensive. Yep, absolutely.
1: So but disappointing a uh, loyal consumer can just be a problem. But in your space, uh, from a repeat and loyalty point of view, given that uh, somebody's bought a toothpaste will come in a certain frequency and he might cross sell into a flosser or not in terms of proportion, how do you look at the whole lens of customer acquisition costs versus you know, there's a robust metric which can be optimized in which you have, let's say, a certain time to optimize. And then there's a customer acquisition cost versus a lifetime value lens to optimize. How do you look at these two and uh, what's your priorities?
0: I think for us, the priority zero is acquiring more customers because India is a big market when sure. it comes to oral care, mm. right? Retention is equally important. But now what we've started doing is that we've also started segmenting our audience mm. based on their buying behavior to understand what products are they likely more to buy, right? So, for example, someone just bought, and the clear insight is, let's say somebody bought a toothpaste once, maybe bought a toothpaste tube once, and then two months down the line he or she came back and bought two more tubes of toothpaste, then two months further down the line, they came back and bought another two toothpaste tubes, and we know this customer is our toothpaste customer, right? We'll try and do two things here. One, we'll try and, like, at least from a communication standpoint, try and Cross sell any other product, whether that's a mouthwash, whether that's a toothbrush, and see what kind of conversions do we get in that particular uh, customer segment. And if that does not work, then we'll try and sort of sell them more toothpaste in terms of different variants, right? Because the the hypoth- the hypothesis here would be key. if he or she is buying two toothpaste at once, maybe someone else is also using sure. it in their family, right? And if we can provide more variants, which we have, we have about seven variants of toothpaste in our portfolio today maybe they can switch to something better so that there is no monotony in their head, right? Then it's just not getting bored. Hmm. So that is what we'll try to do. Uh, so I think that is the lens that we apply when it comes to retention overall.
1: Interesting. And this would, in terms of, uh, you know, choice of channel, choice of uh, content with respect to communication, you spoke about recommendations which are somewhat curated at a level where you know this is a toothpaste bias you want to cross-sell limb to mouthwash versus doing more toothpaste. So the level of segmentation and the maturity and the team setup behind this, how does that look like now?
0: So uh, we've started going very aggressive in terms of, uh, you know, segmentation and segmentation is by product, by price point as well. Mm -hmm. You know, which consumer is likely to buy at a certain discount, right? Or is more, uh, is more inclined towards, you know, making a purchase at a certain discount led communication versus a functional communication. So there is a, there's a price filter, there's a communication filter, and there's a product filter that we apply so that we know what to do and when to do. And, Mm uh, since we now have a fairly large customer database, we can play with it, right? With different permutation and combinations channels that we use, uh, are, you know, three classic channels, email, WhatsApp, and SMSs. Of course, three channels have very different kinds of returns Mm -hmm. and, uh, WhatsApp being the one that gives the highest return today. But, uh, for us, email works beautifully well. I think sure. it can be case study at some point in yeah, time. No, sure. <laughs>
1: so from an email channel, is this I you know you mentioned a lot of things around the storytelling aspect yeah. of things. And then now there is a certain level of data-driven recommendations that are coming in. So is your email now a combination of both? How does it look?
0: Yeah, it is a combination of both. So uh, the replenish so on the email and WhatsApp you also have a replenishment course, shows for certain products which have high repeatability. But apart from the replenishment flows, we do send out functional communication around, you know, buy this bundle uh, at a certain price point, mm-hmm, you know, or mm-hmm. this offer is live, take a look at it. But we don't shoot those email to our entire database, right? Like I said, there is a segmentation, segmentation filter applied across price communication product and that's how the email goes. The content play, which is our newsletters which we shoot out every Sunday or we try and shoot out every Sunday, goes to pretty much our active email base, right? So, we have about, let's say hypothetically speaking, we have about a lakh customers in our email database. About 70% of them open those emails and read it. So we'll send it to those and we'll try and, you know, uh, the, those dormant 30,000 email IDs, we'll try and see, ki. we'll try and run a few different experiments of how many of yeah, those, amazing. uh, can come back and start reading more, right? Uh, we'll try very interesting subject lines, you know, for example, one experiment that we did, which we got a fair bit of, uh, uh backlash as well. Uh the subject line read, Your salary is credited in your account. <laughs> right? And, and and that opened. Like a lot of people who were not opening our email did open the email, right? Yes. And they were like, guys, uh,
1: this is not cool. Yeah, but <laughs> at least you didn't do a mom miss call soon, right So <laughs> that's still not as bad. But now tell me something. This is a very clear thought-through blend between a very editorial-led approach versus a very algorithm-led approach. And somewhere, as a founder, you seem to know your subject line experiments, which says that this is stuff that is high on your radar in terms of uh, how much you care about it. How does uh, the org-level prioritization and mindset get allocated? Because we have 50,000 things to deal with, right? Yeah. But in terms of your attention to the whole subject of engagement, segmentation, retention, email experiments, how do you look at your own you know, routine around this?
0: I think... Uh... Like overall, as an organization, we are very, very passionate about having a high NPS score, sure. right? That is one of the North Star North star metrics that we are chasing. Can we have a disproportionately high NPS score where there are no clear benchmarks for us in our category because all the other larger players are offline driven. Like when you're an offline driven play, literally you can't look at NPS or cohort data because there is no online purchases happening. You can't track that. Uh, For us, NPS is a very high metric and all the inputs that help us have a higher NPS, I spend a lot of time working on those. Mm. Retention is also part of it because if our customers are happy, uh, there is a high probability that they're going to give us a good score, right? If they're happy with our product. So I also look at product development directly. That's one of the core functions that I take care of. And I try and understand. If someone is not liking a product, why are they not liking the product, right? If they've made the purchase once but they've not come back, is it because they don't like the product or have they transitioned to another platform to buy the products, right? Mm-hmm. Because now we're at a stage and at a scale of the our scale in our journey where we're trying to build our distribution, right? With the likes of offline retail and even you know quick commerce. And now we're also available on Amazon Fresh, right? That's a two-hour delivery. So we try and this understand is for your
1: toothpaste and not for your toothbrushes, or yeah. both
0: no this is for toothpaste, toothpaste. so mm-hmm. distribution expansion is primarily happening for our consumables because uh, that is where the category that's is. that's how you
1: look for people uh, and people who discover the brand and probably come back to do more
0: yeah so we try and understand okay uh, whether they're buying because they whether they're not buying because they don't like the product because mm-hmm. we're not getting their repeat purchases or they're transitioning to something else or huh? you know uh, for example another insight that we got where i was speaking to someone who's a highly evolved customer and she told me that she buys all her hygiene stuff for her entire household once a year in the first week of January on Big Basket, right? Okay. So she'll buy 18 different toothpaste, one like one, like six for her well, husband. She'll live
1: to have that kind of space in her house. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Like for her husband, for, um, for her cook and maid, for herself, for her kid, all different types but she'll buy it once, right? She'll buy all the floor cleaner once. She'll buy all the detergent powder wow. once, right? So, to get to that kind of a customer, now I have to make sure that I am doing the right things on a, uh, mm. on the right platform I'm available so that there is mind share, And it Stop. will take us some time.
1: And so like you said, the person who's consistently buying toothpaste might not start coming to a website again. He might just do it on Amazon because it's easier. He's anyway shopping on Amazon and all of that. And from that lens, that data would go off your radar because you don't get that individual information. Which is, I mean, the moment you start scaling up distribution, you will start to have this audience blind spots. And one of the things we've learned, uh, uh, you would have seen Kapiva experiment and you also uh, mentioned yourself that the D2C experience on your platform is a lot higher involvement, higher assistance, you know, all the education and community building that you're probably doing there. So from a involvement level in your category, uh, it starts to seem that people are slightly more involved with your brand than they are with any other brand in the category. I don't know if people speak with this level of love or passion about a Colgate or whatever when they're compared to do it with a Perfora simply because... You're doing all those storytelling, you're doing all of that founder-level involvement in communicating with the community. At some point, it does uh, become non-scalable, but you're balancing between the editorial lens versus the data-driven lens.
0: True that, and I think I might be biased, but one of the moonshots when we were just starting out the brand was, can people in a social conversation talk about an oral care brand, right? Because that didn't happen before we came onto the scene. But today... I've been part of conversations where people don't know that, hey, I'm part of Perfora or I'm someone who's building Perfora. Well, they've spoken about it, you know, very randomly and casually, you know, hey, I I bought this new really good looking toothbrush and they have my name printed on it. You should check it out. Right. And it comes in like variety of cool looking colors. And, you know, I tried a toothpaste which like uh, does not look like a toothpaste tube, but it taste is amazing, right? The taste mm-hmm. is delicious and I love the story that these guys have, right? So, those conversations the have started happening uh, in social circles, which was one of the things that we had envisioned. Ki, kya ye ho sakta hai. Can are you we, inspired by Method? Yes, I am very inspired by Method. I've read the book uh, mm-hmm. and I love what those guys have built, Eric Rand specifically. He's a, uh, he's a yeah, serial brand you know,
1: builder. Maybe you should just tell a couple of lines about Method and what inspires you the most about them.
0: I think, uh, so, Method is a personal care company. Uh, they sort of reimagined the entire personal care, dishwashing, floor cleaning, detergent space back in early 2000s when we started when they started out in the US. Uh, what what sort of inspires me about Method or what I admire about them is how they were able to change the perception about a category, right? They applied basically the personal care lens to a hygiene category, which is you know making it more colorful, more fragrant, more experience driven. Rather than just saying, okay, this is how the bottle, you know, looks like for a floor cleaner. And this is what the color of liquid should look like. This is how it smells like. They really changed the playbook, which is what we are trying to do, uh, to some extent at before mm-hmm. as well.
1: So a toothpaste doesn't have to bo- be boring. It can taste much nicer. It can look different and un- un- unborn. So Jadan, a very interesting story in terms of how we've thought through the whole brand play and how this is a 20 year journey for you. I will zoom into a part, which is pretty much the last leg of our conversation today to the whole strategy and execution around retention, around cross-selling, around upselling, around making sure that people who've experienced your brand once will continue to remain loyal with you over a fairly long period of time. So let's zoom into this bit around. Uh, when did you start thinking about it? What are the first steps that you took around uh, putting the people together, maybe putting the tech stack, maybe putting the data layers uh, together? Let's just run, a, run through that bit a little.
0: Sure. So I think we started thinking about it in about two, three months when we launched. Okay. Uh, and then since The team that we have is a is a young team who thinks on first principles, try and solve problems on first principle thinking. Uh, This was a problem statement presented, you know. Retention might not be relevant three months into our brand launch journey, but it might become relevant in, in a year down the line. So let's start making some progress towards it. I think once you start thinking about the subject, there are a host of things that open up, right? What tools to use, what softwares to use, what apps to use, how do you go about creating user journeys, someone who's bought a certain product, when do you send him or her a reminder or a flow on WhatsApp, on email, so that they know, okay, hey, this is the product that I should replenish now. Uh, for us, I think first substantial step was when we had applied to the Startup Accelerator program by WebEngage. Uh, we would applied and we were very fortunate to get in. I think that program was also very instrumental in helping us build uh, more comfort around the entire attention playbook you know mm. what all things can we do what all things can't we can't do so for example one very interesting thing was uh the personalization play that web engage has right that if you're a user and you've bought it or you've visited the website you will go on the website and you will see a personalized banner okay hey hey uncle here is a special 15 percent repeat offer for you if you wish to buy this product sure. right which really was very cool we thought and we sort of deployed it and we saw very encouraging results mm. uh Similarly, we used apps on Shopify. Uh, I think one of the apps that we've used is Rebuy, which helps us cross sell and upsell. One, when, when the mm-hmm. consumer is making their card, show them, okay, if you buy this toothbrush, this toothpaste is must. If you bought a water floss, the mouth force is must because these are all complementary products. And that has helped us increase our AOE. AOEs. Uh And at the same time, if a person has tried a consumable, consumable product, the possibility of them coming back and buying more of it increases right because the first transaction has happened for that particular product so so i think that's what we've done on the tools and the thought process in terms of team for the longest time we had only one person who was managing both the acquisition and retention of course she had the help uh, of you know folks at webengage to navigate our way through retention but now we have a team of about four people where one person is looking at data one person is looking at communication. One person is looking at what kind of offers to run and what channels to push out what communication. So, so that's a three people team spearheaded by one person who looks at the entire PL. So, so that's what the team setup looks like.
1: And from a data gathering and organizing and unifying perspective, given that, uh, uh, you do intend to have a long term play with your own platform. That's where your larger emphasis, uh, is going to be is fully, fully sorted and at what point did you start capturing or I don't know if you yet integrate uh, if you have a customer care ecosystem, if you have a chat ecosystem, if you have a chatbot ecosystem. Is all of this coming together?
0: Yeah. So all of this is coming together and we invested on all these things fairly early on. You know, first six months, very limited resources, but we still had a sure. uh, chatbot, a WhatsApp interface where people could sort of DM us. You know, one person would look after all the incoming you know, text, I would personally look after all the emails and Insta DMs that we would mm. get. And then we had another person put, look after all the phone calls that were coming in. It was a team of four people. So three people have already explained what they were Sorry. doing apart from doing their other additional uh, jobs. Additional yeah. jobs. Uh, today, we have a customer experience team of about four, five people. And they look at emails, they look at you know WhatsApp, they look at Phone calls. We also do outbound calls to people who have abandoned their checkout to understand what is Mm. the challenge. Is this a is this a price issue? Is this uh, you know you're just not made up your mind? Can we help you out with understanding the product better?
1: Sampling or is this everyone? This is
0: on abandoned checkout, right? So people.
1: Some people just to get a sense of it, or everyone for
0: everyone for everyone. So we've built that, and we're still building that entire uh, resource pool.
1: Resourceful. Yeah. So in terms of staffing, you put in the right kind of people there. Uh, Is this a set of people who've already done this before? Are they mature practitioners or more like first principle thinkers who can learn fast and adapt fast?
0: A combination of both. Uh, But we are personally very inclined towards people who are first principle thinkers and people who want to do something interesting and unique. And they bring the right attitude Mm -hmm. in terms of building a company. For example, I'll tell you the first person that we got on board for our customer experience team is a qualified lawyer. Okay. Uh, she's practicing law and she's not enjoying that domain and she had reached out via network. You know, hey, uh, Jatan, you know, I love what you're building, but I'm not really happy in my job. I think it sucks. Uh, and uh, I want to do something interesting. I want to be part of the uh, brand building journey. Uh, is there an opening? Is there an opportunity? Right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, she's very well spoken can write really well, can argue well (laughs) if required. (laughs) Uh, So that was the first uh, strategic hire for the customer experience team. Someone that we hired second came, you know, had worked at Zomato, then had worked in sales, then had worked in operations. And then we got him on board because we felt he was bringing the right attitude towards solving customer problems, Mm. right? Irrespective of what his work experience was. So, So we got him on board. Today, we have a team where it's a mix where people have a very unique and interesting background, which is not relevant to what they're doing, but they're doing a great job at it. And they're people who come from this industry and they're learning and adapting to our
1: work Mm. culture and our practices because unlike a large company, we operate in a very unique way. It's very interesting. So on that note, thank you so much for doing this. it been a very interesting conversation and I'm pretty sure that uh, Perfora would go a long distance as well as inspire a bunch of D2C founders to be a more calibrated approach, be a more, you know, well-made uh, choices across their journey. Thank you so much. So it was one interesting conversation with Jathan. I think a D2C founder who's already been through a consumer brand building journey from a zero to one stage as well as a five to ten stage between Akiva and Vada. He carries a lot of maturity in thinking about unit economics, in thinking about D2C first products from the day zero when he started this business out. And I especially love his obsession with uh, the whole storytelling aspect of things and alongside that the algorithmic or the data-driven approach to launching replenishment campaigns and other such stuff. So again, a fair blend of uh, intuition driven approach versus a data driven approach put together. The third piece of the puzzle, which I thought uh, was very interesting in terms of his approach towards user engagement and retention. They started thinking about it pretty much from day zero. They wanted to know their cross sell upsell opportunities from then. They put the first pieces of the puzzle together within the first two quarters of being in the business. Of course, he also acknowledges the right time to put serious mental bandwidth behind this would probably be when you're at a 100k users or a crore a month revenue scale. But good pieces of the puzzle solved together translate into great foundations for a long-term play. So on that note, wishing for a long journey in becoming a master consumer brand. All the best, Jatan.